The text that we're coming to this morning as we go through the Gospel of Matthew is a particularly humbling one. The way Matthew builds up, or the way Matthew built uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 is he does three miracles, conversation about discipleship, three miracles, discipleship, three miracles, discipleship. And so this morning we come to the, one of the first of the three parts on discipleship. But as we come, I want you to understand that the tone this morning is severe. I want you to understand this morning that the tone that Jesus sets in this text, that the tone that Jesus sets for us this morning, that the tone that Jesus sets for this sermon is an intense one. There are truths that I'm wrestling with. There are truths that are difficult for me. They've revealed hypocrisy in my own heart and lies in my own life. Self-deception. But if this morning we will receive these words as Jesus has written them, given them to us. If we will receive them as he has spoken them to us. If, if we will receive them with the level of severity that he intends for them to come. If we will, we will receive them as Jesus intends for us to receive them today. It will cut us to the heart. It will cut us to the heart past all of our apathy. Past all of our complacency. Past how comfortable we are in our Christian lives. The words that Jesus speak this morning... Knock us off balance. And in fact, I believe that that is a place and in the way and in the spirit that a Christian should live. A Christian should live a life that is somewhat knocked off balance by Jesus. That causes us to not get into a rut and into a routine and be able to, to just go with the flow of life. Instead, as Jesus speaks to us the same way that he spoke to his disciples, it, it knocks us off balance. Alerting us that we are living for something greater. Alerting that there is still sin in us. Alerting us that there is still a greater call on our lives. And so this morning as we open up God's word, I ask you to pray. Pray that the Lord would open your heart. Pray that the Lord would open your mind. Pray that the Lord would speak through you. Would speak to you. That the Lord would cut your heart. Even tell him, God, I want my heart to be softer today. Excuse me. With that in mind, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 and stand with me as we read God's word together. <coughs> we will begin this morning in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And, Jesus, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8, the crowds have begun to build around Jesus. 
And as was often the case throughout Jesus' ministry, as the crowds would begin to, to gather around him in great number and would begin to, to press up against him, Jesus would often at that time withdraw and go away from the crowd to pray or to speak to his disciples, to teach his disciples. And that's what we have in verse 18. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus and Jesus decides to take his disciples and get in the boat and go over to the other side. Well, as Jesus is preparing to leave with his disciples, a man, the Bible says, a scribe, comes to him and says, Jesus, I will go with your teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. That wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, I'm in for that. I'm excited about what the future holds with you. I believe that there's something big going on. And Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I will go wherever you go. The language of the scribe is striking, isn't it? If, if you were to ask me, how is it that I come to Christ? How is it that I find salvation in Christ? This is the, what I would point you to. That you have to say to Jesus in surrendering your life to him that, Jesus, I will go wherever you go. I will do whatever you have for me to do. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. That my life is a blank check. And I just want what you want. I just want to go where you go. And so what we see in this man is that this man has come to Jesus with enthusiasm. This man has come to Jesus well-intentioned. This, this man has come to Jesus saying the right things and apparently believing at least some of the right things too. It would have been impressive to Jesus' disciples the same way. This is a scribe. A scribe in Jesus' day is a man studied in the law, a man of of a notable intellect, a man that is a scholar and teaches the law of God to the people of God. This would have been a man that would have been prominent in the community, a man that perhaps had prestige and some measure of wealth, a man that people listened to when he talked. It must have been exciting for the disciples. They were perhaps as enthusiastic about the man coming as he was about going. After all, what could it hurt? How could it not help? to have an expert in the law, a man of prestige, come and be one of the disciples. They, the disciples probably thought, finally, this thing is getting off the ground a little bit. Finally, this thing is starting to move in the direction that we thought this all was going to go. But Jesus' response to the man is jolting, isn't it? It's jolting. Let's read it again together. Verse 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The man comes to Jesus in enthusiasm. The man comes to Jesus well-intentioned. The man comes to Jesus and says, I'll go wherever you go. I'm excited about what the future holds. What are we expecting? We're expecting Jesus to give this guy a bear hug and a high five and welcome him onto the boat, aren't we? We're expecting that Jesus is going to give him a fist bump and say, man, awesome to have you. Glad you want to be a disciple. Come on board. But instead, Jesus looks this man in the eye and he says, are you ready to be homeless? Are you ready to be homeless? Are you ready to be begged to leave your town? Are you ready to be thrown out of your home? Are you ready to lose your job? Are you ready to see your kids on the street? You want to go to the other side, but you don't seem to understand what the other side holds. 
To get into the boat with me is to forsake everything that you've spent your life building. To get into the boat with me is to lose all of that. As a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus will be begged to leave this very place. And so he's asking this man, you say you want to go wherever I go. Do you understand what you are saying? Do you understand the level of commitment that's going to take? Jesus is looking at him, I believe, and saying this. You're enthusiastic now. But when you lose your house, your enthusiasm is not going to carry you through. You're enthusiastic now. But when members of your family turn on you, your enthusiasm is not going to be enough. You're well-intentioned now. But when you lose your livelihood and you lose everything that you've built your life upon, are you still going to be on board? See, Jesus is confronting this man. Matthew has given us subtle hints throughout this passage that this Things are not as they appear on the exterior. First of all, the man comes to Jesus, the scribe comes to Jesus and calls him teacher. Now that's not significant in any other book except perhaps in the book of Matthew. Because throughout the book of Matthew, the only people that speak to Jesus and call him teacher and refer to him as teacher are those that are unbelievers. Then Jesus, in response to the scribe, calls himself the son of man. The son of man has no place to lay down his head. Again, this means other things in other places, but particularly in the book of Matthew, it is Jesus referring to himself as a son of man only when speaking to unbelievers again. And so Matthew, even in the subtle hints, is speaking to us, letting us know that things are amiss in this man's heart. That he may have an enthusiastic exterior, but there is something behind the, the enthusiasm. There, there is something behind the good intentions. What I want you to understand this morning is faith built upon enthusiasm and good intentions will never last. Faith built upon enthusiasm and good intentions will never last. At some point, the storms are going to come. At some point, the winds are going to blow against your house. At some point, life is going to get tough and your enthusiasm is going to go away. At some point... As well-intentioned as you are, you're going to find that in your heart there's a vacuum there. You're going to find that in your spirit there's fear there. You're going to find that in your spirit there's a lack of discipline there. There's a a lack of want to there. And you're going to go away. So we typically come to Jesus this way often in our society. Particularly here in the Bible Belt. Here in rural Alabama, the most common reason people visit our church is that they want their kids to learn good morals. And so they come in enthusiastic, they come in energetic, they come in well-intentioned, hoping to perpetuate in some sense, maybe something that they got as a child, the morality that they heard about in the church. But they go almost as quickly as they come. They leave almost as quickly as they visit. Why? Faith built on enthusiasm. Faith built on good morals. Faith built on good intentions is not enough. It's superficial. Superficial. Your good intentions and your enthusiasm 
are not strong enough anchors to hold you down in Christ. No. Unfortunately, much of modern Christianity has been built on enthusiasm, though. And much of modern Christianity has, has been built on, what am I getting out of it so that I feel right? So that, so that there's something in my, my heart that excites me. So that some, some sense in which I, I come and I'm, I'm charged up and energized, right? And I believe this is why there are so many transient Christians now. Christians that are red hot for four weeks and then gone the rest of the year. Christians that come into the church, and, and Christians is a very loose word here, but come into a church, enthusiastic about that church, energized about that church, all on board about that church, and then gone almost to, as quickly as they came to another church in which they are equally as energized and enthusiastic and well-intentioned until that goes away. And then they go to the next, and to the next, and to the next, trying to hop from one mountaintop experience to the next. Why? Your enthusiasm isn't going to last through homelessness. Your enthusiasm isn't going to last through the difficulties of faith. Following Jesus is costly, brothers and sisters. Following Jesus is costly. It's difficult. It's all in. It's, 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 it's surrender. It's about being a bondservant. It's about being a slave. This morning, I want you to examine your heart. Some of you are on the edge of leaving. If you're honest. Or maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've been in a while because you did leave. You left a, a sister church or you left some, in some other way. Perhaps you left here and have come back. I ask you to search your heart. Are you looking for the next moment of enthusiasm? Are you looking for the next moment of excitement? Because I would caution you that it's not going to last. That it's not sufficient to hold you down in times of trouble. It's not sufficient to anchor your faith. No, brothers and sisters, you must have an abiding love for Christ to endure. You must have an abiding love for Christ himself to persevere. It must not be about what Jesus makes you feel like. It must not be about how you are built up in your own eyes. It must not be about good intentions. Instead, it must be that Jesus is the treasure of your life, the treasure of your heart, and the treasure of your heart will get you out of the bed every day. On the good days and on the hard days. On the enthusiastic days and on the monotonous days. On the mountaintop and in the mundane. An abiding love for Christ will wake you up. An abiding love for Christ will get you through. An abiding love for Christ will push you into the word. An abiding love for Christ. Some of you are enthusiastic. And I would even ask you this morning to examine your enthusiasm. Enthusiasm's good. All right? I, I, I'm not saying I don't want enthusiasm in our church. I want us to be enthusiastic. I hope that if you spend time around me, you sense enthusiasm about what, what God is doing and how God is working. The question is not whether or not we should have enthusiasm. We should be enthusiastic. The question is, is why are we enthusiastic? Is it authentic enthusiasm? Or 
Is it fraudulent faith like we see in this man? Now, Jesus' response is particularly jolting to us, isn't it? It's particularly surprising, and if we're honest, it almost feels out of character for, uh, to, for Jesus, doesn't it? If we would almost say, I think if we heard a Christian brother or sister say this, I'm thinking if, if I heard Aaron or John or Zach say this, I might respond to them and even say, this doesn't even sound Christian to me. What do you mean? Take him into the boat, Jesus. Take him into the boat. But what is Jesus being? Jesus is being gracious and kind with this man. Jesus is being gracious and honest with this man. This man doesn't know what he's stepping into. And Jesus is saying, just hold on for a second. Jesus doesn't reject him, does he? He doesn't say you can't go. He doesn't say there's not a spot for you in the boat. No, this, he looks at him and he says, are you sure? Are you sure? Count the costs. Measure your life. Make sure that you want to get in the boat before you get in the boat. See, Jesus asked this question, I believe, of this man. Because this man has some measure of wealth. This man had some le level of prestige in his life. And apparently had built his life up in this way. And Jesus knows the heart of this man. For this man to identify with this come uh, by night teacher that used to be a carpenter guy named Jesus. And all of a sudden to latch onto him and to become uh, a, a disciple of his. That was to forfeit all credibility that he had. He would no longer be a scribe. He would lose his job. He would lose his income. Likely lose his house. His children wouldn't have all the things that he never had growing up. His whole understanding and the way that he saw the world, the whole way he operated in the world, the whole way he thought about the world, all of that would go away. And Jesus just wants this man to make sure that he's worth it to him. Jesus is looking at this man and says, are you sure you want to get in the boat? Are you sure you want to get in the boat? I want to be honest with you. I want to be forthright with you. I want to be gracious with you and let you know what's going to happen on the other side. On the other side, we're not going to have a place to lay down. On the other side, there's going to be some hungry nights. On the other side, there's going to be some difficulty. Are you sure you want to get in the boat? You understand Christians are those that get in the boat. Christians are those that get in the boat. There's no other option for the Christian. You are not a Christian if you aren't willing to get in the boat. You're not a Christian if you're not willing to forsake your livelihood and forsake your, your life as it has been built up. Forsake perhaps even not being able to give your kids everything that you dreamed of being able to give them. If following Jesus is what's required of you. Following Jesus is costly, I say again. And Jesus this morning is being as forthright with us as he is with this man. To be a disciple of him is to, for it to be costly. Salvation is free. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. But being a disciple costs us everything. Are we a bondservant? Are we a slave of Christ or not? Are we disciples of Jesus or not? Brothers and sisters, you must get into the boat. You must get into the boat. To be a follower of Jesus is to surrender your life to him and to get in the boat with him, not even knowing what the map says.
is to go to the other side, not knowing if the other side is greener or browner. It's going to the other side, not knowing if it's for richer or for poorer. It's getting into the boat and saying, Jesus, you just navigate. I'll follow you. This morning, I wonder how many of you have limited your yes to God. I wonder how many of you have limited your yes to God. In your heart, I want you to go there and I want you to examine it. Where in your heart do you stop saying yes and start saying no? When Jesus beckons you to come, when Jesus invites you to get into the boat, when Jesus invites you to go to the other side, not even knowing what the other side may hold, at what point do you stop saying yes and start saying no? Is it at the point when he asks you to move away from your family? Is it at the point where he asks you to move away from your friends? Is it at the point where it costs you your job? Is it at the point where you have to start making less money? Is it at the point that you have to take a stand ethically that costs you some of your best friends in the world? At what point does Jesus call you to do something that you stop saying yes and you start saying no? Because brothers and sisters, wherever that point is, you have an idol. You have an idol. You have an area of your life that is not under the lordship of Christ. You have an area of your life in which you are not being a, a faithful disciple. What area is it for you? This morning, I would call you to repent. I would call you to come and get on your face before God himself and repent of the idol. To tell him that you will get into the boat, that you will follow him wherever he goes that you will do whatever he asks you to do that you are all in with him whether the grass is greener or browner on the other side or not that you are not just enthusiasm and good intentions instead you are an abiding loving disciple of Christ himself and can we just all acknowledge for just a second that Jesus has no idea how to grow a church can we just all acknowledge that for a second this man wants to come. Jesus is wanting to grow this movement, right? He's wanting to, to do this, this revolution, beginning a whole new faith, a whole new way. Now, the way I see it and the way that pragmatic church growth strategists would see it is you, you'd look at this and you say, well, Jesus, we need all comers, man. We need warm bodies. We just need warm bodies, right? We need warm bodies in the children's ministry. and We, need warm, we, we just need the warm bodies up in here. What are you doing, Jesus? Do you see that Jesus was not interested in a manipulative evangelism tactic that caused people to make enthusiastic decisions that wither and die in a week? You see that? Jesus had no interest in that. Jesus had no interest in selling a surface-level Christianity that was more palatable to the least common denominator so that the church could be as big as it could be. Jesus has no interest in the church being big that way. No, he looks at the man and he says, count the costs. Count the costs. Are you ready to be homeless? Are you really my disciple? Are you really coming with me? Are you really coming after me?
Let us take notes from him. This is how we're going to do evangelism in our church. This is how we're going to make disciples in our church. Not by trying to make it as big as possible, as fast as possible. Not by trying to build our empire, as I talked about last week. But by looking at brothers and sisters, as many as will come, who are saying, I will get into the boat. By looking back at them and saying, well, just count the costs. Count the cost. We want you to come. We want to fellowship with you. We want to enjoy the gospel together. But we may be going a place that you're not willing to go. Count the costs. Brothers and sisters, all of you that consider yourselves members of Iron City Baptist Church, I even beckon you this morning, count the costs. Are you willing? Where does your yes stop and your no begin? Where are the idols in your life? A second man comes to Jesus in our passage. Luke tells us in his account of this same story that when this man comes, it's a, it's a slightly different interaction. And that this man doesn't come to Jesus saying, Jesus, let me go. Instead, Jesus looks at this man and commands him to go. He says, follow me. Just as he says to many of his other disciples. And this man looks at Jesus and he makes what would seem to be a perfectly justifiable explanation as to why he can't come in that moment. It seems perfectly rational, perfectly justifiable. He looks at Jesus and he says, I've got to go bury my dad first. Now for all of us, that's a moment of incredible tragedy. Heartbreak. This man, if he was the oldest son, had incredible responsibility culturally even. That you were to not even pray in the Jewish culture until you had first taken care and seen after the burial arrangements of your father. And so this man looks, and this is perfectly reasonable, perfectly justifiable, and tells Jesus, I'm willing to come, I will come, but first I must. And Jesus rebukes him. Again, It jolts us. It knocks us off balance. It it causes us to question our understanding of who Jesus even is. He, he, He responds back. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. You come with me. In other words, there's not time for that. There's not time for that. You are going to be a worker of life. You come with me and do the work of life. Let the spiritually dead take care of things like that. Now, let me just give a caveat here for a second. Jesus is not advocating that we should abandon the responsibilities that we have in the family. Paul says that to not take care of one's family is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus takes care of his mother from the cross. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is the priorities of your heart. This man had a priority problem. There is nothing in our lives in which we have the authority or the right to say as believers in Christ, but first let me. With him there is no but first. With him he is always first. He must be. He is the treasure of our lives. He is the only way in which we can find true joy and abiding peace that goes without understanding. For us to love him most, for us to love him first, is better for all of those other areas of our lives anyway. So this man looks at Jesus and perfectly rational, perfectly justifiable. He looks at him and he says, I I just can't. I can't. Do you see that Jesus is not interested in justifiable disobedience? 
Jesus is not interested in looking for, in his disciples, rational disobedience. That's what we do, though, isn't it? We look at Jesus and we tell him all of the reasons why we can't do what we should do. Jesus, I would go on a mission trip, but I only get a couple of weeks of vacation. And you know, I really should spend that with my family, right? Justifiable, rational. Jesus, I know I should read my Bible, but man, I got a lot going on at work right now. And by the time I get home, like, I'm just zapped. And like in the mornings, I can't do it. Then I'm like trying to pry Cheerios off of my two-year-old's face, okay? I just can't deal with that. I want to, but I can't. Jesus, I know I should share the gospel with a coworker at work, but they call that discrimination now. I might lose my job. Or, or, or it's going to be awkward for me to go back to work. It's perfectly justifiable. I have to go there every day. We look at Jesus and we say, I can't because. We give plausible, rational, logical reasons in why, which, why we can disobey and really not be in disobedience. But brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as a rational Christian life. The Christian life is to be radical. And to be radical is in nature to be the opposite of rational. There is no such thing as a rational Christian life. Instead, there is the Christian life that says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It is radical in its nature. This morning, I believe the Lord is calling some of you to take some radical steps. The Lord is calling you to take some irrational steps of faith in your life. Some irrational steps in which if he doesn't come through, you will fail. Some irrational steps in which if he doesn't come through, the world is going to look and just be perplexed. And by the way, they're just going to be perplexed anyway. I think about brothers that we have in this congregation. That even right now are preparing to send their young adult children to the mission field for months at a time. That's irrational. It's irrational. I think about my brother who's preparing to leave Anniston in the coming weeks to go to Vermont, the most secular state in all of the Union, to plant a church that he hardly knows with his wife and his three kids leaving behind a house and all of his family. It's irrational. It's not sensible. It doesn't make sense. Think about Diane. Diane, a member of this body, who sold everything that she owned in North Carolina to come and move here and work with inner city women in West Anniston. That doesn't make sense. That's irrational. That's not a move up in the world. That's a move back. It's irrational. That is if we have the perspective of now. If we're looking for the perspective of now, the Christian life will never be rational. But as Jim Elliott has made famous, let it, it is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to have what he cannot lose. From the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of the kingdom, it is beautifully, remarkably, powerfully rational. It's only irrational because we are too short-sighted to see it. It's only irrational because we want as much as we can have here and now. I am convinced that among this body are God-called missionaries. 
And I am convinced that among this body are God-called preachers of the gospel. But more than anything, we're Christians. That here there may be preachers, and here there may be missionaries, but here there are certainly Christians. And Christians are called to do irrational work for the gospel to the nations forever. He's calling you. He's calling you, every one of you. You you don't get to live a normal life because you're not a preacher. You don't get to live a normal life because you're not a missionary. In fact, you are a missionary. Every Christian is called to live on mission for the gospel, to dine with sinners, to bring them into your home and promote the gospel in there to them. There are some of you that should move to Lots Creek, Kentucky. And you should partner with Josh in planting the church and doing the work of the ministry there. Not because you're a highly trained missionary, but because you're a Christian. Some of you should move to Salt Lake City, Utah. We will commission you. We will send you out from this body. And you should go not because you're a seminarian. You should go not because you're a highly trained missionary, but because you are a Christian. Some of you should go to Swaziland and you should stop sending your money there and go yourself with your kids and partner with them and and love on the kids of the orphanage and build it up and be a part of a a church plant right there, partnering with Shabani. Not because you're a missionary only, but because you're a Christian. And the Christian life is radical. It's irrational. It's not living for now. It's giving up what we can't keep to gain what we can't lose. Some of you should start Bible studies at work. Some of you should start working in soup kitchens. You should start teaching the Bible. You should start loving the kids of our church and our community. You should start outreach block parties at the trailer parks on Chakalaka. You should foster kids that have dangerous pasts. You should adopt kids that look nothing like you. Not because it makes sense, but in fact because it is irrationally gospel-centered. And if we miss the urgency of this text, we would be remiss. Jesus is speaking here with great urgency, isn't he? He's looking at this man, and in essence, what is he saying to him? There's just not time for that. There's just not time for that. The work of building my kingdom is too urgent. The work of building up the church among the nations is just too urgent. The work of getting the good news that you can be delivered from your bondage of sin. That you can be delivered by the gospel. It's just too urgent. You must go. We can't do that right now. We We can't bury dead people. We've got to go and resurrect the dead. It's just too urgent. You realize there is not enough time for you to live for both the world and the kingdom of God. There's not enough time for you to build a kingdom here and, a, and build the kingdom there. You must choose, brothers and sisters. You must count the costs and you must choose. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. I believe this I- issue of urgency is so much, we'll begin in verse 14. So much the issue at hand, the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14, 
Jesus speaks these words to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I believe one of the messages that Jesus is speaking here so clearly to the church at Laodicea. He's saying, you are living a complacent life. You are living a comfortable life. You are living a life trying to to hang out somewhere in the middle. And I want to spit you out of my mouth because there's not time for that. You believe that you are rich and fat. You are poor. There's not enough time for lukewarm Christians. There's not enough time. If last week taught us anything, it's that there's not much time. There's not enough time for complacent Christians that put an indention in the pew, but no indention into the world. There's just not enough time. Think about a story that my cousin told me when she came back from her mission trip at Tanzania. I had her come and and share with my youth ministry at the time. We were doing a mission week. and The story that she told is they're, they're going from village to village to village sharing the gospel. And they come into this one village, and it's, it's pretty much just a ghost town. And they go into this one hut looking for people, and in this hut is a child. The child obviously grossly malnourished. She look, he looks swollen. The family had left him behind. She said she wanted to run and grab him and hug him and care for him and minister to him. And just be there with him the rest of the day. The missionary that she was with looked at her and he said, we've got to go. We've got to leave him behind. We have to go because if, if we stay here with him, dozens of people like him will never hear the gospel. We can't help him. We have to go. There isn't enough time. We must go. Brothers and sisters, while we are bored on a Saturday... That's happening around the world. While we look for ways to kill time, people are looking for food and for hope and in need of the gospel they know nothing about. There isn't enough time for us to stand pat. There isn't enough time for us to stay lukewarm. There isn't enough time for us to stay comfortable. We must count the costs and we must get into the boat question that's facing you and facing everyone this morning is whether or not Jesus is worthy of it. It's whether or not Jesus is worth this type of irrational, radical devotion. It's whether or not the kingdom of God is worth this level of costliness. If Jesus is worth it to you, you cannot stay still. If Jesus is worth it to you, you cannot be tomorrow who you are today. You cannot even be this afternoon who you were this morning. The Spirit will not allow it. This morning, I'm calling some of you to come on. Come on. Join the ranks. Let's get to work. I'm calling you to repent of the rational ways that you've tried to explain away the will of God for your life. 
for your family. This morning, I'm calling us as a body and as a church to get into the boat. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is...